Welcome to the Project Tempest podcast. I'm CJ, and this is where we talk with creators about their journeys, their struggles, and their inspirations. Lee Murray is New Zealand's most awarded speculative fiction writer and editor. Her many works include the Tane McKenna thriller series that began with Into the Mist, The Path of Ra, which is a supernatural crime noir that Lee co-writes with Dan Raybards, dozens of stories, novellas, and anthologies, and recently co-editing the collection Black Cranes, The Tales of Unquiet Women, which won both the Bram Stoker and the Shirley Jackson Awards. Lee's latest release is Tortured Willows, a poetry anthology featuring four female Southeast Asian writers of horror. Lee Murray, welcome. Thank you, Collins. Lovely to be here. Thank you for being here. Now, I, I have a question for both of us, but really for you to start off with. Lee, we both live in New Zealand, this rock in the Southern Ocean, this place where dinosaurs roam the earth, where a lot of people go mad, and where there's a long tradition of misfit outsiders. Lee, are you a misfit outsider? Uh, yeah, I definitely think I'm an outsider. Yeah, I definitely think I am an outsider. And it's interesting, isn't it? Because even just talking about, if, we, if we're talking about story, I never really saw myself in any stories when I was growing up. So, you know, I want to write, those are the stories I want to write are the stories that, 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 reflect my experience now so I'm getting more into getting more into that um so yeah I do think I'm sort of weird and I'm the very first um New Zealander to ever appear in Weird Tales which is you know oddball fiction bizarro fiction so you know maybe they picked me out as being you know one of their tribe and <laughs> so, they spotted it yeah <laughs> they already saw that I'm I'm a bit offbeat and a little bit strange no I'm yeah, am I am I weird? I think we're all weird, don't you? I mean, I think we're all yes. a little bit odd in our own way, and so it's just kind of finding those people that that tribe of people who have the same oddness and 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 you know the things that resonate for for the same people. So, um, and I think we're all got we're all weird in our own way, and especially down here in New Zealand where, you know, we we step fairly close to the veil here and. Um, New Zealand's New Zealand has that sort of mythology, that gothic feel that is very, very real, that magical realism that sort of walks beside us. And so it's very easy to be a little odd and a little strange down here, isn't it? I mean, I think I guess, you know, people from overseas look at us and think we're all a bunch of sheeples. But but actually, we have some real, you know, that number eight wire ingenuity where there's that that sort of oddness and, and innovation, which kind of is pretty pervasive here, I think. And that's why, you know, we have such good business innovation, great film industry, because we we sort of embrace oddness to a certain extent here. I think I think that's true. Would you say that's true? Yes, I agree. It, it was made a lot clearer to me. Um, I spent some time in the US a while ago, and I, and I had never spent a lot of time outside of New Zealand. And 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 I love the US. It was it was so huge and generous and and very strange in its own way. But in some places there was a conformity that felt strange to me because my experience of New Zealand in general is there is this deep streak, as you say, of just kind of weird under the surface strangeness where we've been locked away at the end of the earth for so long. We've developed all of our own strange habits and ways of thinking. And I think people really do like I I genuinely think there's a real New Zealand tradition of people coming here and going mad in very real ways. And we've all found our different ways to navigate that. And I think that is much more pervasive through New Zealand society than people have often liked to admit. But I think that 
one way or another, that kind of confrontation with that is what anyone who's trying to create something here has has to engage with. And we all come from very different backgrounds. I mean, my my family came across on ships in about 1850, and we were we were always the low rent people. We were. <laughs> We were not high class. We were the policemen. We were the people who were cutting down forests, all those sort of things. Um, and and there's all these mad skeletons in my family closet. And my understanding is that you are third generation Chinese New Zealander on your mother's side, especially. Is yep. that right? And on my dad's side, um, they came in this in the uh, the first new, the first member of my family on my dad's side came in the late 1700s. So. Nice. Been here a long time, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so there's these deep, strange roots that, yeah, that, that we yeah. have to grapple with. Yeah. What was, if we're talking about that kind of um, that that flash of recognition that you're talking about with kind of misfits seeing each other, um, when has that happened for you? Have there been moments, especially maybe in the last ten years or so, as your writing career has really blossomed, that you've felt people seeing you in in a good way? Yeah, um, that, that's kind of tricky because it's been, you know, it's 10 years to overnight success, you know, of and, and you know, that's how it is in, in publishing. More recently, I think it's because I've been braver. So, so um, initially, I, I got sucked into that whole idea of write what you know. And, and at the time, I was kind of, um, when I started writing, um, I, you know, I was writing, I wrote about New Zealand, the first, very first story I wrote was actually a middle grade novel for children. Um, and I was writing myself home. So I was writing home, you know, like I was trying to feel for the New Zealand bush and, you know, all of the places that I loved, you know, the Bay of Plenty. So that kind of was writing myself home. And then, you know, I wrote a chicknet, chicknet novel about, um, about running because I was doing a lot of running in those days. And so I was kind of using my my experience to tell to tell a story, and so so. But then, but later, I started to write. I, I realized that that wasn't really where I wanted to be. I, re, I the New Zealand thing was true, but I wanted to write things that really resonated for me. That that sort of embraced my fears, and that sense of otherness has become more prevalent. And you know, I've, I've, I've delved in and explored it more. And so more recently, I've become more open about my sort of that otherness around race and heritage and, um, you know, liking horror. You know, it's not, I mean, and so one of the key things, the, one of those key moments was actually going to GenreCon in Australia and meeting Genevieve Flynn, who, who is my co-editor for Black Crane's Tales of Unquiet Women. And we met, this is weird, because we've told this story a few times now, but we met actually in the foyer, you know, um, outside a, a panel, you know, in the foyer. And we arrived, both of us, you know, sort of conscientious Asian girls, we'd arrived, both of us, half an hour too early. You know, we'd left home, we left, well, she'd left home and I'd left from the hotel way early to make sure I didn't miss this panel and I wasn't going to be late. And she'd done the same. So we were standing outside and we, we'd met before online, but we'd never actually met. And so, you know, we sort of rolled up and went, oh, we're too really, you know, we should, we should, ha we should get talking or we should have a cup of coffee or go and find a cup of coffee. And as it turned out, you know, we suddenly, we straight away had this recognition that this is why we're here early, because we're these conscientious Asian girls. And we started talking about, well, where are the Asian women in horror and 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 you know horror fiction and you know isn't this weird because you know already we've got all these expectations placed on asian women and you know writing horror is just already 
you know, subversive and, and, and you shouldn't be doing, you shouldn't even be speaking out, you know, and right, being public if you're, if you're an Asian woman. So, so this connection, you know, we talked about, you know, backing trailers and being a bad drivers and, you know, all of this sort of expectations that are placed on Asian girls. And, and suddenly we had this conversation that just blew into this, um, you know, we need to have, where is this anthology of our work? Where are these writers and why aren't they better known? And um, and it just snowballed from there. And within two months, we had a publisher. We had a list of you know people who were interested in writing for us, and that just became something big. And it has been kind of a watershed thing. But I think I think you know when you when you say talk about these things, you know there there are multiple moments, and you you can choose, and you just don't know which one is going to be the big thing. So I've been braver about writing my heritage. Going back one another step, you know I mean I. I, you know, I, I found my tribe in New Zealand horror writing and then I'd sort of had, and, and that came out of a charity, well, actually it came out of Dan Raybart's putting a note up on Reddit and saying, seeing it, seeing Reddit, a uh, Reddit thread that said kids are very creepy, aren't they? And then that <laughs> sort of start, started a writing exercise and a whole lot of horror, you know, New Zealand speculative writers jumped on board and said, oh, this is great, let's do this exercise. And then we had some great stories. Um, and, and, and then, so somebody said, well, maybe we could make a book out of this. And that became a really great community building project. Um, and that sort of set off my writing with Dan and we both have, you know, we, we, we write this supernatural crime noir, which is, you know, his, from his Maori experience and also my Chinese heritage. And so, but in horror, in thriller, in supernatural folklore, um, something a little bit different. And that, that meeting of that partnership has been quite fundamental to my writing and, and improving my writing and, and changing the way I moved from, you know, just writing about New Zealand and writing about things I knew to being braver. So there's been incremental steps and in being braver about putting myself in my writing. Nice. Um, and, yeah, and I think, you know, there's... It's scary. It's scary to do that, isn't it? To put yourself in your writing and uh, and and be more visible. You know, I, I think it was Foucault who said about putting the I in author, isn't it? And and you can hide yourself in fiction. You can hide your viewpoint. Yes. You know, t give the character's perspective rather than your own. Um, and then and then argue it. Uh, you know, through test that, that those ideas in story. But when you're putting yourself on the page a bit more, oh, that is really scary stuff, you know. Um, there's nowhere to hide, you know. It becomes, it becomes very personal, but it also becomes, I'm, I'm realizing, much more powerful and it resonates for other people. So, um, yeah, so that's it. So when were those watershed moments? I don't, sometimes they're quieter and I don't know I've made them. And then I realize looking back retrospectively, I mean, the one with Genevieve was really, wow, you know, wow, we need to do this. So we, that instant recognition. The one with Dan has been quite about, the, the partnership has been fantastic. And we've, we've built together and we've learned a lot of things together on the way and our writing has improved. So just recently we were asked to write a, a mystery, you know, short and we're using our, our um, Path of Ra series as a basis for this short. And it was just lovely to fall back into that and see how easy it was for us because we've got this very strong collaborative 
um, partnership, but also because both of us have moved on as writers. So even from writing the first book in the series, which was called The Hounds of the Underworld, we're now just much more proficient and quicker and we understand each other. We have a much better process for working through these things, which is kind of, you know, squabbly little little brother big sister of sort course. of feel and you know I'm the boss because I'm the big sister but it does it works really well for us and it was lovely to revisit that and and now when I think about it you know that's been a fundamental very important partnership in my life to develop my writing and I think to Tans as well you know um and and what we write together is very different from what we write individually and yet it still works you know so there are lots of things little things and also big things (laughs) that sort of seem like watershed (laughs) moments um so it's a tricky question to answer um and i'm probably i'm jumping all over the place i'm a little bit of a chipmunk (laughs) i i i always feel like these conversations at their best form are if if we're in a bar very late at night and just chatting away. Yeah, writers in a bar, it's... right? Exactly, exactly. A <laughs> very long history of that always one. Always <laughs> look for the writers. They'll be in the bar. Uh, and all the best business deals do go down in well, bars exactly. and, and, you know, in this sort of – in the – in the social aspects around um, conferences or, yes. you know, uh, just like I say, in the, in the lobby meeting Genevieve like that was just, it was fantastic, you know. The real action is never in the sessions of no. almost any type of event that I've ever been around. It's really interesting you say about the 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 bravery of writing yourself. I mean, in in my experience around around different types of professional writing, there's so many opportunities to put on a mask and to essentially essentially recreate a well-established formula to imitate other voices because often that gets you to a certain level of success and it works and as you say very easy to just sit there forever really you can just sit there basically imitating other people's expectations for a very long time but everyone interesting at some point feels that urge from somewhere to push a little bit further into the really scary stuff and go well no this is me this isn't me with my mask on and then hearing you talk about these little moments of recognition every one of the ones that you described in some way involved stepping forward. And my question, and, and, and this is, I'm completely out of my depth, Lee. I have no idea what I'm talking about. It seems to me that it's sometimes easier for plonky white blokes, for instance, like myself, to do that stepping forward because we assume that we're supposed to be sitting at the table and it's harder for other people. And f- for you, for instance, where does the impetus to step forward come from in, in each of these little increments? Oh, yeah. Well, I guess it it comes from that connection. I mean, in both of those cases, Dan and I recognize that we like the same things. We like the same, we read the same books. You know, he'll, he, you know, he'll send me, he'll send me a podcast of something and say, listen to this. What do you think of this? You know, and we will share our love of those things, you know, um, oh, we both read Lovecraft, but man, wasn't that hard to read, you know, that stuff, you know, those kind of, the, you know, we, we share those sorts of those sorts of discussions and we've had some family barbecues, you know, we have, you know, some family values that we share. So suddenly when you, when you, when you connect with someone in that way and then you want to work with them, then, then that, then you bring that, that connection with you. So those are the, so, so that is why, you know, you know, this is really interesting because recently I was asked, um, you know, I'm on the Scouts um, um, Award in German, Germany for horror fiction, and um, they asked me in an interview, you know, um, what is your greatest strength? And I, I, I have to say it's the community. 
And when I look back at those points, those nodes where my my writing has taken off, it's always been around community and the connections and then finding that connection with someone or, you know, a person or who, and that opportunity is opened. And, um, and when I was writing with Dan, you know, that, that, that collaborative um, process, I was terrified, you know, because am I good enough? Am I, you know, do you know, there's always that imposter syndrome, you know, you've got to bring, when, when you're working with someone else, you've got to bring your best game, you know, and because you're letting, you're not, a, you're, it's not just yourself you're letting down, it's, it's somebody else and you need to bring your best game. And, and I think the thing with writing collaboratively is, of course, you never, first of all, there's this, there's this notion that it's got, you're only writing half the book, so it's, it's half the time, right? <laughs> <laughs> in, theory, in theory, I think. So not true because when you write, you, you know, you're right. It takes double, you know, that always makes us, 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 us burst out laughing because, of course, it takes double the time because there's so much more coordination. You've got to agree. You've got to, you know. But on the other hand, you're writing something that's different and not something you could write individually. It's so much more powerful you're bringing to, well, not more powerful, but different. You know, it's a voice that you wouldn't have had on your own and so you know those those connections so when so when this this interview i'm going i'm doing the ronnie corbett story uh, you know um, answer to the question but so when this interview came up and said what's your greatest power it is the community it's the connection first and then the opportunities that 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 evolve as a result and because you show interest or something clicks for you or clicks for them um, and then, oh, what about we do this? And it's just that whole brainstorming, you know, that, that snowballing effect that comes from being involved in a community, from mentoring people, from being in critic groups, from just being involved in things like this, having a conversation. And, you know, that it's just so wonderful, the opportunities that arise. And to be often, to be honest, I've very rarely gone out to seek opportunities yeah. they've come from the community it's not like a you know yes I have sent a query letter out and had a novel accepted from a query and that is a way of doing it um, it's harder it's harder yes um, I think the connection first and the community first and then some oh this person writes this kind of thing you might be interested in her or them or you know and that 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 creates this discussion and I and the dialogue and there's nothing more exciting than that. I think that's just, to me, I mean, it's 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 not strategic, you know. <laughs> I'm, I'm but not, it is. It's, it's not deeply strategic, strategic. But it is. It works for me. And it's and also, you know, um, Colin, I I've been quite open about in the last six years since I turned, you know, fifty, um, that I, I I have anxiety and depression. I'm an introvert. I'm an introverted extrovert, or however that word is, you know. And everyone says, how can you be depressive when you're so bubbly and you smile all the time? And it is it actually, I'm being more open about that too, you nice. know, um, and, and that's possibly why horror has appealed because I want to explore those things that frighten me, that make me anxious, that make me depressive. Um, and so maybe that's part of that honesty and being braver and getting out there. And therefore, each time my work gets a little stronger, I'm exploring new things that resonate for me. And when you when you look at the things that resonate for you, that really mean something to you, 
then then automatically, I don't know, you find something inside yourself that make gives you that eureka moment they talk about in creativity where sometimes the story tells itself. It doesn't happen much for me. Mostly it's hard work. But generally, when you're working in something that you're passionate and excited about, then you're going to be creating good work or better nice. work or stronger work or challenging yourself. And as soon as you stop challenging yourself, well, you might as well stop because what's the point? You know, if you... And that's what I guess you're saying about just being this one one faceted type of writer who writes the same thing over and over because that sells. Well, that's great. If and go those people because yay, if you can make a living and it's selling, good stuff, you know. Um, but um, but also, you know, I could I could see you being stagnant very quickly. Sure. You know, yeah. I mean, if we look at Lee Child, he's moved on, right? He doesn't want to write those you know, great bestsellers, great thrillers, you know, different, you know, and he doesn't want to write those anymore because he, I, maybe he's lost interest. And, and so now it's his brother writing those, those thrillers and great, great opportunity for him. But um, so maybe that happens, you know, maybe that happens. And, and you see a lot of those people writing, I'm not saying formulaic, but things, commercial stuff that people really, that, that a big range of people want. Um, then they then they maybe get tired. I mean, George R. R. Martin hasn't finished Game of Thrones, you know, because he's moved on to other things. And I'm wondering if that's because, you know, there's this mass of people wanting and they want a certain thing and he has moved on. Maybe creatively he needs to move on and do other things. So, you know, um, I guess it's just sour grapes, really. I'd love to have something on the side <laughs> like that that, you know, millions of people want to read and that will fund my other creative stuff, which, nice. you know, lucky for them, they can fund that other stuff. You know, they don't need to be worried about it. Now they can afford to go on and do things that are less commercial. So, and perhaps, I think of, yeah. on, on that wonderful George R. R. Martin example, I mean, I mean personally, I'm, I'm a cranky contrarian to the core. I if there were a hundred million people all demanding this thing of me that I didn't want to do, I, I would also um, probably not do it. Yeah. Is, is, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, exactly. That may be the, that, that may be the, yes, that might be the point, isn't it? Or, or there is also, you know, maybe if you've got a commissioned work and it's, you know, it's very prescriptive about what it's got to be, then, you know, it's lost interest. And some people do say, especially the pantsers, you know, if they outline very strictly and they've got a very strict thing, that once they've done the outline, the excitement is gone because there's not so much, um, you know, discovery in the creative process. It's Absolutely. it becomes work. So, um, you know, there are some people who say that. So I can understand that once you've, you know, trouble is if you've you've been given several hundred thousand dollars to. Yeah, it hasn't happened to me. <laughs> but um, if you've been given several hundred thousand dollars to write a book or write a screenplay or whatever, um, you know, then then you need to deliver and that becomes work as opposed to Absolutely. fun. It, it is something that, that I think um, it certainly happens in screenwriting because a lot of screenwriting paid work these days is either adaptations or essentially fixing up existing properties. And you are being given money o over a very short amount of time to go in and essentially fix a very well-defined problem. It is a job. There is a requirement. And I think in, most of the best writers, their their skill in that sense is they they still can find the thing that excites them and makes them passionate about it. 
but I think there is a burnout factor there that is very real. Beyond a certain point, you are, you're obviously a professional, a very good professional, but you're working within such narrow parameters that you need some kind of other outlet to do the things that your soul is singing for, as it were. Yeah, Otherwise, we just work. become hacks. Yes, Yeah, well, exactly. I mean, I think that's the thing, isn't it? It's like being an editor of an anthology, which I've done a lot of, and here we are talking about this, but, you know... Um, being an editor, you, you, you come, a curator editor, uh, you, you come with an idea and you hope that your other, your contributors will, will be excited by that idea and that concept. And then they take it and they do something special with it. And they put their own, give it their own voice and their own structure. And they come back to you and say, here's my story or here's my poem. And what do you think? And then you as an editor need to, Think about it in the whole of the the whole anthology. How does this fit in the whole? How can it be shaped a little more to really make it sing in this in this anthology? Where will I place it so that the reader reads um, in a certain order, in order to get a certain feel or messaging from the anthology? I mean, and you have to bear in mind that some people will never read the anthology in order they'll go to their favorite author and that mm -hmm. might be you know so so there's all these things and um and you know you're not you're not the writer but you still have a means of shaping creatively how the work is perceived and i think that that's what you're talking about there in terms of the, the script doctoring and that kind of thing and even though your name might not be on that individual piece you've had, you've got the magic of sharing and shaping the way yeah. it moves forward. So there is that. There is an outcome that everyone is working towards, which is one way or another, something good comes into the world, right? Yeah. And and, yeah. and you play different roles. I was really interested to hear the combination of um, talk, talking about the connections with the community being a superpower, which, which is wonderful. And at the same time, the sense of, I, I think, frankly, almost every single writer I've ever met when I've known them well, they have some combination of anxiety or depression or some other challenge in engaging with the world. When I think of young people especially who are often right in the middle of this turmoil, if connecting with community is a really powerful way to build these wonderful things, meet people, get inspired, but if you're struggling, especially as a really young person, with, with some fundamental, frankly, brain chemical challenges, that will stop you from connecting with people because one of the first things that happens with depression is it makes you isolated. Yeah. Where does that, like, how do you get across that gap? What's what's the bridge that can exist? I, I think you and I are of a certain age where we, we've, we've maybe figured out some ways to do this, but if, if I'm 18, 16, 12, 25, and I'm looking at that exact landscape you're talking about, how do you how do you connect with people if your brain is trying to stop you from doing that? Yeah, you know, I just said that I didn't actually come out as, I didn't get diagnosed as having anxiety and depression until I, I was 50. Sure. Okay, so so I don't know how to navigate that in that age group because I didn't do it, you know, like I couldn't do it because, and we, we didn't have social media and internet and Tumblr and TikTok and all these other ways that young people communicate to, with each other now so so I think my experience is not probably relevant for young people now I do know that there is for example in New Zealand I co-founded with um, Piper Mehia a group called Young New Zealand Writers which has been going a decade where we've been doing 
um, uh, op offering publishing and, and creative writing opportunities for young people um, so they can express themselves. You know, so that they can navigate some of the stuff because I don't, I don't know if you know, but actually um, uh, creators have uh, a much higher proportion of, of, horror, uh, of anxiety and depression than any other community. And the horror community also has a much higher, higher um, uh, you know, um, incidence. And so this is really something that I'm really interested in because I yeah. think horror does allow you to address those things. And the horror writing community is one of the loveliest, kindest. It seems, it seems, you know, you know, it seems to be sort of um, contrary to what you would think because you know these people write about blood and guts and you know intestines. But but actually, they're the loveliest, kindest, gentlest people. And I think it's because they're all trying to navigate this world. Yes. So and it and it doesn't necessarily have to be published. So for the young people out there, if there are any young people out there listening. You don't have to publish it. You can just write it, and that is a way of navigating some of this, some of this stuff. You know, you can just write it, write it, write it for yourself. Bring it out later. Look at it again. Read it again. See how you feel about it. You know, explore those those ideas and those things that are concerning you, and putting it on the page. And it's likely to be powerful. You know, um, if you're if you're writing it from your heart. So what. Yeah. What's the alchemy there? Because th this is a really interesting process that fascinates me. There is something that happens when you take something out of yourself and put it into the form of art, whether it's writing or sculpture or anything. Yeah. There is, and and there's that for for me at least, and I I assume everyone's experience is different. Sometimes there's that feeling of kind of cleansing. You have literally taken something out of yourself in some way. Um, what? what can that do for people if again if i'm 16 i am not trying to get a worldwide book deal i just have some things inside myself that i want to get say. out of myself yeah yeah um what is the process i think there's some writing by someone called andreason about this about that eureka thing that feeling that that sort of endorphins of you know putting it on the page and actually you know um that that moment where you get it um and and a lot of writers talk about this you know where they just where it just becomes the muse talks to them and they put it down and it's you know and I, look it's it i guess it's quite individual isn't it um and i i don't know i don't quite know but it just is so i was talking to um brian matthews is very good um very good writer he he uh writes the forever man series which is sort of speculative horror stuff and um fabulous work and he's also a psychologist and he's also on the horror writers association wellness committee which i'm co-chair of with dave jeffrey Nice. Um, yes, and Dave Jeffries just, I think this week is his uh, Jericho writer, Jericho World um, book on mental illness in, in horror is actually coming out as a film. So looking forward to that. Anyway, that's just beside the point. But um, Brian actually said some very interesting things in one of the very first panels about um, mental health and horror that was held at StokerCon, I think it was in Providence. And he and he said that there is a very that anxiety is about revisiting stuff. So you sort of ruminate on issues, and they get bigger and bigger, and 
you know, and they become more more and more of an issue because you ruminate, you go over and over and over. I wish I'd said this. I wish I'd, you know, you second guess yourself, which is actually what we do when we revise our writing. <laughs> you know, we just go over and over. Is this right? Is this wrong? So perhaps it's 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 perhaps it's you know, um, explains why I'm an editor because I'm always going over things and and oh, could we have said this better? Is there a better way of doing this? And I think that there is so there is so effectively anxiety and, and editing are very much the same <laughs> thing. Um, and I have never thought of it that way. That is that is excellent. Well, well really currently like it lights up the same parts of our brain. So maybe there is some connection about this. You know that that you know when you when you you know when you write when you use your brain in this way it and and the same with creativity so when you're using your brain it sort of counters those endor- those those negative thoughts that are going through your mind so perhaps there is something in that and i'd love to see some research um matthias clausen who's um um, Scandinavian writer on horror and um, and the the value of horror in, in popular culture and how and you know how that affects people and why there's so much interest. He's definitely someone to read. Um, def- I've got a couple of his books, but I know he's just put out a new one. And always interesting to read on that subject of horror and and how people respond to it and how the public responds to it. Um, nice. Yeah, uh, there is, and I, you know, and I was also I wrote an article for Newsroom some time ago about because I was involved with Headlands new new stories of anxiety, um, which is now moving into sort of a film project. Um, but that particular story I wrote I wrote around I wrote a story around. Um, um, writing from the darkness, which was around that partic- that first panel on um, on horror and anxiety, um, but um, I wrote an article for Newsroom about that particular, you know, spinning off from that from that. It's all a spin off, you know. It's community. It's you know, it's, we're going back to that whole notion of community and how these opportunities come about. Um, and Dan Raybutz wrote me a lovely quote, and he said, one of the things about writing horror is that you get it on the page and you can see how, even if it's a metaphor, you can see how the hero or the character might deal with it and come through it. So you've got an opportunity for seeing how to deal with these horrors on the page. And when the hero wins through, or even if they don't, you, you see, oh, well, if I didn't do this, then maybe I could get through to the end. And there's a way of surviving it, coming through, succeeding. Um, even just analyzing and evaluating it is a way of looking at it on the page. So, so, by, so you know, he said it's, you know, you can hang those demons, demons on the ramparts or something beautiful like that. I can't remember exactly what he said. Um, and there are a lot of... New Zealand horror writers who do this, um, Cassie Hart, um, uh, William Cook was was um, I mean I I quoted in that essay, um, and and a lot of them say that horror saved them. Yes. You know, and and I mean, it literally saved um, Janet Frame, right? You know, writing literally saved her. You know, she were they were going to give her a lobotomy, you know, because she was you know because of her mental health issues, and and yet. You know, um, they just the the I think it was the doctor saw that she had won an award from um, the Society of Authors, and so they put that surgery off and 
effectively saved her. So, you know, it can literally save your life. And um, I think that there's that horror particularly has a place in coping with anxiety and and depression and and mental health issues um and we have to be a little careful and sensitive about how we handle this because you know we don't always want depictions of people with mental health issues as being the villains in horror and so we it's a very very sensitive area but i think it's um it's interesting it's interesting Absolutely. It's, it's really fascinating to hear you talking about it. And one of the things that I always find really interesting is the sense of, you're absolutely right, there's a very long standing tradition in horror, especially horror movies, where there's a mentally ill person and they get othered to death, literally. And that's because the rest of us are fundamentally normal and then there's this other person who is ill and something happens through that. And if you shift the perspective, which is really the absolute vast majority of us, if not all of us, are trying to navigate some kind of strange territory in this way. There is no other in, the, in that sense. The, the trans person who's a serial killer is not a thing in that world. It's, 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 it's not us and them. It's just we're all trying to navigate strange spaces. We all need maps. We all need little guides. We all need a little reassurance. And I think that perspective seems to be growing and we're ideally moving away a little bit from the oh that's the crazy person they have an axe type thing yeah i mean then there's always a reason i mean i think we we're we're, we're not accepting that there's just a crazy person with an axe now yes you know we yeah. we want to know a little bit more and 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 you know i've been watching um a little bit of sort of um some of the supernatural crime horror that's going around um and you know at streaming now and you know it's very interesting where there's a sort of moral ambiguity between the heroes and the villains you know who they could almost be you know and i mean obviously they're not the same but there is you know there's like both if you you know that you're often seeing where the hero has many of the characteristics of the villain but they just haven't taken that one step, that final choice. Um, and so I think that's a very interesting line to take. And I think what you're saying about we're all navigating something strange. I mean, we're in, we're all in this global pandemic, you know, and, 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 I, and you know, so, and we're all isolated. And I think this is where New Zealand has a, has a real point of difference and which has now become the – the everyday and that is our isolation and you know we are we are off the end of the world and then when you think about our history you know people lived on you know on farms or in little villages very separate from each other you know before we had the internet and social media and we could look in everybody's kitchens (laughs) and um and living rooms and and have them piped in our ears you know that we lived a long way and so you 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 needed that community and you had to sort of move to see those people and so we understand isolation here in New Zealand we really get that yes. so maybe we were a step ahead on the isolation front you know and Catherine Mansfield talked about that sort of savage hour you know where you know that 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 quiet you know where New Zealand is sort of dark and shadowy and that twilight period and you know and you can feel a little bit afraid and that's very much the case here. And so maybe New Zealand writers have had a little bit of a step, you know, maybe now's our moment, you think? Because, you know, we're <laughs> a little bit ahead of that sort of feel. Yes. Um, because we, we've always known that isolation, have we not? 
everyone else has just started to catch up to yeah. where we've been all along. So it's, it's a wonderful thing. Yeah, you know. <laughs> oh, you know, I was just I was on a um in a group chat this morning with um the the Writers Coffee House, which is something that Jonathan Mabry set up. And um, really lovely friend, and he with a lovely group of writers from the United, all from the United States, I think. And and they were talking about you know supply difficulties with paper and what have you at the moment. And I'm going well here in New Zealand, you know we have this joke, you know it costs five dollars and then a hundred dollars for delivery, and that they're just they're just discovering that now, you know that now that we're in a pandemic, oh my goodness, we're not going to be able to get books, and New Zealand is. What? <laughs> it's always <laughs> been the problem, you know, and yes. it's so expensive and oh my goodness, it's going to be expensive oh. and and we know that we know that that issue here, don't I th- we? I th- I think you and I both remember a time when if there was a movie that was out in the States, it might come here in two or three years. And if there was a book, you might see it in six months and everything had that enormous delay on it. And, and especially in the States, they used to such wonderfully efficient supply chains. And now it's like, well, welcome to New Zealand. Yeah, You've welcome to our world. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and, you know, oh, we've got to get up for Zoom calls. At, you know, yeah. and we're sick of being on Zoom in the middle of the night. We're going, <laughs> well, hang on a minute. That's us, you know. <laughs> we're the ones getting up at 3 a.m. so we can be on Zoom calls, you know. But uh, and because we're in New Zealand, we're just the last person on the list, right? So, yes, you know. Um, so isn't this nice to be doing a, a call at ten a.m.? You know. <laughs> oh, it's so civilized. I I completely agree. The the three a.m. wake ups are are great, but they 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 do get a little old. They do. Um, they do. <laughs> That's for sure. Now, Lee, if you don't mind, I'm I'm going to do something terrible, and. I, I read the book Tortured Willows, which is your wonderful poetry collection with the three others. And I'm going to read badly one line from one of your poems. And I would love to understand more of where this is coming from. So apologies in advance, but this is from the title piece, Willows. Though the devil lost his marbles, the daughter never lost her smile. And the willows whispered warnings all the while. Now, among a wonderful set of poems that I found fascinating to dive into, and I have other thoughts, but um, that poem and that that little that little twist really really grabbed me, and and I, I would love some thoughts about where that's coming from and and what that's about. Okay, um, well, the poem itself is a tribute to Dennis Glover and the Magpies, um, which is a very famous poem, I think, from the sixties or fifties or sixties. Um, which tells about the depression years and, and how difficult it was farming um, um, in the colonists, you know, farming here in New Zealand in the day. Um, and this particular story is my own autobiographical story. So um, the word uh, devil is, is, is meant to mean a white person. Uh, it's a derogatory. So guilo means a, a white ghost, which is a um, – which is – been used to refer it's uh, effectively like the word pakiha in maori um uh although that's not considered derogatory so so yeah so um so that word devil refers to my father who is white and um and he, my father had dementia and he i lost him in the first lockdown in new zealand so i lost him in right. april of last year um so uh, that was pretty hard going. But so sure. uh, he's been, yeah, I absolutely adored my dad. He was instrumental to my storytelling. Um, and But he married my mum. Uh, and one of the very first sort of weddings, marriages in New Zealand of, uh, you know, 
biracial marriages of between Asian and um, uh, European families. And so, um, and so, yeah, he got he got dementia, and my mother basically looked after him. You know, she went and saw him every day. She was always positive and upbeat. Never lost, just just never lost a smile, and she just—that's the filial, that's the duty thing. But my mother absolutely adored my father, so you know, so that's this—that's that line there. Um, I can't remember the rest. And then the Willows whispered warnings. Well, the Willows sisters is that whole notion of sisterhood, um, and you know, that's the 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 kind of chorus of the story, of this, and uh, and the sense of. You know that that feeling of you know women, their expectations placed on Asian women, and we must follow those. And yet these this couple made it work outside of that. So, um, and I'm so proud of them. And, and my mother's story is is hugely powerful. You know, and she doesn't see it. She doesn't she doesn't see it. But she's inspired me so much. To write these stories and uh, these poems, these stories around my Asian heritage, and I'm learning a lot actually. And she'll say things like, she'll just, she'll say things, you know, in response to them, and then I, it sends me off down another track, and I'm learning so much more. So yeah, it, it was these these poems um, in this collection have been some of the most powerful. Um, works for me and that they've resonated for me they've been just they've they've rung me out they've you know um they, they take so long to write you know that they're, they're a little poem of you know a page or half a page and and they've taken just forever to write you know sometimes two weeks to write a poem you know you think that surely you just belt it out it's only this many words and they've just taken such a long time but because they mean so much to me. They've taken quite a long time. Um, but, yeah, and so I'm so excited to be working with this uh, group, powerful, powerful group of women. Um, and we're really, we're going against all tradition to, to be unquiet in this space and talk yes. about the things that matter to us. And I'm just thinking about Angela Eureka Smith, who is, oh, I'm going to say Okinawan, but that's not the word. It's it's a very long word, and I'll have to look it up. I think it's Yubu. I can't pronounce it. But she is from the Okinawan Islands um, by heritage, and she's an American poet. And um, she has discovered her whole heritage, you know, uh, as a result of this poetry collection. And she, honestly, reading her poems, I just want to cry. <laughs> uh, they're all about the, the the Japanese and American takeover of those islands. And so extremely interesting dialogue. Um, and I just learning so much from her uh, about the, the the impact on on that community. So, so these particular poems are all about the Asian diaspora. And um, we have Christina Singh, who is a double Bram Stoker award-winning poet who writes about her Singapore experience. And particularly, she's gone, she's been very interested in herself in domestic violence recently. And so she's gone into the the, the mythology and also the sort of the urban um, the urban sort of myth around uh, around women, domestic violence and violence towards women. Um, and, and the fact that you know that's not spoken about even more so in Asian cultures than in in, in um, Western culture, 
And Genevieve Flynn is just an absolute powerhouse. She's never written any poetry. And I think you'll agree, Colin, that her poems are just unreal you know i just she is just a pool of talent i can't wait to see what she does next her, her poems just really speak she she's an australian um horror fiction writer um she most, mostly writes um mostly writes short fiction but she's just moved into poetry and she's finding her place i think her voice is just so strong she's originally born in malaysia and moved to um uh, Australia when she was very young and um, even and and she's in her um, 40s I believe and so she was sort of growing up when there's sort of um, there's still a lot of very strong racial um, tension and and polit and well there was still a you know the law had law had not changed and so there was still a lot of racism towards Asian people and so her poems are extremely political which I thought was really interesting so it's been it's been a real exploration of our heritage and all of us have been very full of trepidation about how this how this collection will be received so the early reviews have been unbelievable so we're we're feeling a little bit more confident <laughs> that, that the that the that the collection will be well received, but even without that, we just needed to say these things. We needed yeah. we needed to create some space for to open a dialogue to allow other other writers in this diaspora to to feel confident that that there is a space for them and their words are important. Absolutely, I I, I really. I especially enjoy the format, the core kind of structure of it, where you you give the poem and then there's there's the 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 words below the poem that are putting it in context, but they don't feel like notes. They don't feel like like kind of footnotes. They feel like the poem and and the articulation of of, of the context go together, and you get this wonderful individual package, I, I guess, within each poem where you can feel the 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 power of the words themselves on the page and then you get the context that as a reader you may not have and they combine in this to this wonderful effect i thought oh thank you it was a really you. cool format to choose i i've 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 seen variations of it before but not done that well yeah it's really interesting and i don't that was kind of my idea and nice. <laughs> i think it's partly because sometimes i read poems and then i want to go and find out more about the poet yes. or find out more about why they wrote that or what the story behind that was and so i thought well let's just give some context straight away and that will send maybe open the dialogue a bit more and send people down the, the track to sort of read a little more or find you know discover a bit more if that poem speaks to them because not all poems are going to speak to every person and 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 that is what that's the beauty of it isn't it so um and actually some of the responses i've had back is you know one one writer poet said to me oh I was so interested in in the, the poem that you wrote about um beyond Shouting Hill which is about the Shouting yes. Hill women in the Zinran book um the good women of China and she's gone off rushed off to buy the book as well so um yeah so and and to read a bit more around that and I think that was that to me is just so exciting and powerful because you feel like you've you've spoken to someone if they want to read more and they want yeah. to learn more um then that to me is is a win that's just a win you know straight away there like that so i i absolutely to me it it it, it felt like this very helpful little letter like again yes i've 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 encountered this poem it's a 
strong experience and then okay what's next and 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 you're absolutely right and there's this little ladder hook just there going well the some of the context for this poem is this. You could literally type that into, um, into Wikipedia and immediately learn a lot more about this thing. It was, it was just a wonderful way into a world, which I really appreciated as a reader. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I think, I think yes, and, and particularly for Angela's, for example, where she's so, yeah. writing about her Okinawan um, ancestry, that was fascinating, wasn't it? It was really interesting. And, and, and Jean's is very political, so she's gone and she, she's done some found stuff, which is really interesting of what she's just found, you know. Um, she does a found poem around a, a political speech, which was was very effective, I thought. So, yeah, that those those insights are very valuable. Um, and with Christina's, she, she has her uh, and Christina's vignettes are a little bit shorter. And a lot of that, I think, is because she needs to protect the women that she's spoken to because she's yeah. talking about domestic violence. So she's she's had to be a little more guarded um, because she's done a lot of research around, you know, about violence towards women and you need to protect the sources, obviously, of those stories. So, but you do see very clearly on the page, she's such a powerful poet. So you the can voices see it, are there. Yeah, yeah, on the page. So, yeah, so we thought it was just offering that little bit more context because this, this particular poetry collection isn't just, does have, um, is is meant to extrapolate on the discussion that we opened in Black Crane's Tales of Unquiet Women. So we wanted to offer a little bit more than just here are the poems, you know, off you go and and see what they they how they speak to you. We wanted hmm, just that context, like you say, and uh, and I and and the girls really embraced it and um and and found it fascinating. And I think the fact that they knew they were going to write a little something, you know, it didn't have to be much, just a little something to give that give the reader just that little bit more insight. Did help did help them take their poems in 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 directions that they might not otherwise have done. Nice, that's wonderful. And you've talked through this, I think, and, and it's something that obviously comes up really in the poems. Lee, what what are the expectations? Oh, the expectations on Asian yeah. women. Oh, they're, yeah. they're kind of tropey, but there are a lot of them. You know, we had yes, the tiger mum and, you know, that exotic, you know, sexual sort of um, submissive sexual character um and you see that a little bit in sort of anime and some of those those um those modern um interpretations or the geisha feel that sort of very submissive and sexual sexualizing of asian women you have that sort of filial submissive notion where you will always take care of you know you must sacrifice yourself for the community and there's a lot of that there's there's these ideals about asian beauty which are just impossible, you know, and 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 also the the notion of um, you must not speak out, and so already just being speaking out and and telling yes. our truth is is against that whole traditional expectation of Asian women. So it's it's there is they're quite broad, and there are a number of them, and we've we've addressed I think a lot of them, particularly in our own diaspora, and how. You know, for me, I look at the New Zealand context a lot. I look at even my, my, uh, my, they're almost autobiographical for most of us um, 
except perhaps Christina, and she's talking, she's obviously done a lot of research around violence. But um, but for me, it was a lot of how is it looking in New Zealand and how, you know, how is, how's that experience been for Asian women? So, so I, you know, um, so yeah, 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 they, they, they've been, they've been uh, very, yeah, they've been, it's been groundbreaking for me. <laughs> It's, it's, it's been, I've had to be so brave to put these out there. That's all I can say. And it, and it feels so wonderful that it's such a powerful collection and, and it, and it feels to me as, as a complete outsider to all of this, it, it feels so honest and like no one put on a mask in that sense that we're talking about. It's, it's, it's great. I mean, and, um, Again, I'm asking stupid questions um, because no, I'm no largely stupid. 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 No stupid um, questions. Is the, you just talking about expectations, and 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 I I I think we maybe both have a sense of the kind of the things that the broad outside world can think about Asian women and all those that whole kind of spread of things. Is there a difference between the world's expectations as a whole and the things that perhaps you individually feel? are the expectations placed on you? Is there a gap there between what the world expects and then what you internalize if you are growing up for yourself in in this tradition? Yeah. You know, that's a that's a really good question. And what was interesting about Black Cranes, Tales of Unquiet Women with our contributors, is that they all had a different experience. Um but there were similarities. So with Tortured Willows, even, even though we have narrowed down the discussion into our own diaspora and the, our own experience, so we've taken our personal experience or our, the thing that we wanted to explore more um, and, 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 and delved into that in, in Tortured Willows, there is still a cohesion in the whole collection and that we all talk about those unreal expectations about servitude and and how you look, you know, aesthetics, um, about filial piety, about what our fears are for our children, um, about the sisterhood, about how women come together, but also the complicity, how some how women also buy into that sort of those expectations and must, you know, and how we can't help but socialize those ideas. So, so those things were very universal, and then we we looked at the specifics of how they applied to us. Now, I have a, um, a European dad, and I'm married to you know a European Maori man, and so you know we so I have certain privilege afforded to me because I had a European dad and a European you know, looking husband. And so, so, you know, I have advantages. I've had lots of advantages. I went to, my dad said, you need to go to university. I came, he came from a white collar, you know, family, a blue collar family, I'm sorry. And he went to, got to go to university and he felt that it was important. And I was the first, you know, woman in my family um, to gain a degree. You know, that's sort of those opportunities, you know, my mother was went to school for the longest in her family. You know, she got to sick form and that was the, the highest level of education of women in her family. So she did, she, so we, you know, progression. And so they, so I was lucky because my parents saw the value of, well, they saw the value of, of me getting an education, you know, um, I didn't learn Cantonese and my mother's, sure. you know, and so that is a, that's a regret. 
So there are some expectations that I have that perhaps don't, that I have internalized. So my parents said, get a, get an education, you know. And I think for modern Asian women, that is very much the case. You know, you must get it, you must have a higher degree. You know, there is a lot of this, this, these expectations that that's where that tiger mum thing comes from. But for other, for other groups, that might not be the case. So it's hard to say. We are all very individual and very, so we told such different stories in Black Crane's Tales of Unquiet Women. Very different stories. And yet there are some, some overriding themes. So do I conform to the tropes? I don't, I don't, yes, yes, I do. In the sense that, that, you know, Asian women, they don't say no. They always say yes. They always want to help if they can. There's this idea of servitude. And I have taken that on so, so on board so hard that it's very hard for me to say no to anything, which is really getting difficult. It's getting really difficult because I want to say yes to everything. I want to help as many people as I can because why wouldn't you? But also it's, it's, self-defeating and it's becoming you know I'm losing you lose yourself so it is very it's very hard to find a balance between you know that Asian self that you know and it and also and also I just want to put out here that I'm not a tighter so you know I'm half Asian but I'm full Asian and I'm half New Zealand you know but I'm full New Zealand and you know there's none of this sort of I'm only an eighth or a third or a you know I've got some Japanese in me and some Spanish in me and you know I'm basically um you know what we what is it on Parks and Rec where she says you're ethnically um uh yeah um uh, ambiguous yeah <laughs> but um yeah um but I think that you know am I one thing no I'm not and none of yeah. us are and and you made that point very clearly earlier when you said we are all othered because we all are othered in some ways we have all felt bullied we have all felt you know different or out of place or you know even, you know, you go to a writer's conference and we're all writers and we think, oh, I'm out of, you know, I shouldn't be here. I don't have any right to say anything. And I don't, what do I know? I know nothing. And every time I sit down to write a novel, I think, what the heck do I know about writing a novel? I know nothing about writing a novel. And yet, you know, I've written 10 or 12 or whatever, you know, and I still don't, I still don't know what the rules are for writing a novel because there are none, you know. And, and, and so we're all trying to navigate the space and I don't know that I I can say that I'm, yeah, that is a really tough question to answer. And I don't think I've answered it very well, but basically yes and no. (laughs) (laughs) Perfect. That's a a perfect answer. No, that was, that was really interesting. And and I, I very much take the point. I mean, mean, half the problem in general, I, I suspect is when people from outside a given discourse try and slice up and label and tell you, well, you're this and this and this and this, therefore do this. And, and as soon as you start doing that to people, something is taken away, some right to self-determination is is gone, and then we end up with a world where everyone is essentially representative of something, but not really, and supposed to do this and not supposed to do that. And that feels like a gigantic tangle that we make of ourselves. Yeah, it'd be boring if we wrote, it'd be boring if we wrote all the same stories, right? This is the problem with the algorithms because the algorithms very specifically want us to do just that. Yeah. They want us to conform to the data points. Yeah, and then, you know, if you're talking strategically, then we should just write the same thing. 
the thing that people like and we should just keep writing that. So people say you should stick to your genre, you know, find your genre and stick to it. Well, I write all over the place. I mean, I mostly write New Zealand fiction and I mostly write horror, but I write all over the place because I write what, what resonates for me and I hope it will resonate for readers. Um, and I'm starting to write some poetry and I'm doing some screenplays and, you know, so I'm writing all over the place and that is not ideal for making a successful career. So, hey, I don't, I don't, I wish I knew the answers. Um, you know, I'm not Lee Child, I'm, I'm Lee Murray. And so, you know, <laughs> but, um, but you're right. It, it's 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 a it's a balance, isn't it? And then it's also a balance between. And the problem with literary writing and and literary works is that what is art and what is, you know, what is a product, you know. And there's a very fine line between what is a product and what is art, you know. And you know, um, I don't know. If you do a poster, you know, if you if you if you do a piece of art and it's a poster and it's mass produced and it's put on every you know train station or is it still art or is it just a poster, you know, and just a poster? And and I think that there's a problem around this notion of what is art and what is what is commercial and are they do you know do they intersect are they the same thing you know if it's art is it's you, I don't know it's if it's popular therefore it is not quality and there's this terrible yeah exactly I can see you raising your eyebrows there Colin even on a podcast I can see you doing that <laughs> and um but I but it is there's a tension isn't there you know and and the problem with literary arts is that there is so little money going around um, you know, help and support that we're all fighting over the same bone, and so we, you know, the thing is to spread out and you know, and 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 put aside what we what we can say is, oh, that's not proper art, and this, is, yeah. you know, and so so that you know to to basically defend our patch, um, and that's that's tricky. That's tricky. It's really interesting you say. I'm, I'm, my my perspective is that um, turning all of this into a zero-sum game whereas you say if you get your funding then I don't get my funding which is I think a, a lot of where these arguments come from it's it's fundamentally destructive and I think in the end and New Zealand is, is a really good example of this you have what are effectively very small cliques or cabals frankly of people in positions of assumed cultural power who get to play gatekeeper yeah and the thing is the the world that we're moving towards where um the tools of content creation and distribution are universal. A lot of the old ways where you could hole up in your university chair and essentially dictate who was in and who was out, a lot of those things won't work anymore. And that's a world that I personally, coming from the outside, I, I see books especially struggling to adapt to. Um, coming to some extent from video games, which has always been the absolute bastard child of commerce, um, video games have always been products. And there are debates within video games about what, what is art, what is quality, etc. But fundamentally, you're always making an experience, offering it to people. And if they like it, they buy it or play it or engage with it. And a lot of the gatekeeping over the past few years has vanished because, because of technology. And video games are at the forefront of that. Yeah. So the ways that video games engage with their audiences are, are just evolving at insane rates. And my very outside, very uninformed view of especially some of the literary side of literature is that it feels sometimes like the horse and buggy makers desperately trying to set fire to the cars in the parking lot because 
there's a strong resistance to just the, the way the world is going which is hopefully away from some of this zero-sum game stuff. Yeah, it is interesting, isn't it? I, I was recently on a panel with Michelle Akor and um, Tereda, and they were saying the same thing. And they said the reason they got into comedy because there is no gatekeepers. Yes. So they're straight away in front, standing up in front of their audience and you fail or you you know you succeed or fail based on your performance and you have to be quick to change your material yeah. or or recognize what the reader wants and it's in real time and that must that must be you know insanely scary and really 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 um exciting you know um and you know and i think and I think that for writers, where it's a little bit delayed, right? So you write something, sure. and personally, I don't believe in writing just to the commercial. I think you read to write what you feel strongly about. I mean, it's like starting on a PhD, right? There's absolute. If you don't like your research topic and your research supervisor, you can just forget about making it to the end. You know, you got it three years or five years if you're doing, or eight years if you're doing it part time. And if you are doing, you know, you need to absolutely love that topic. You you need to want to live and breathe that topic. For, for that many years and the same as applies for a novel and okay if you're Jonathan maybe you can probably knock out a novel in a month but if you're me it might take you three years or two years or something to knock out a novel and you need to love it so um, and then then there's the gatekeeping so small press and um, and indie press has really opened the door for yes, um, for yeah. for anyone to get their work out in front of people or, or self-publishing you know um, the danger is, of course, that without the gatekeepers, you know, the gatekeepers want a certain sort of thing, but they also do help provide that quality in the sense that, you yeah. know, there isn't, it's not riddled with, with spelling mistakes and inconsistencies, and there's been enough sets of eyes on it that that you can ensure a certain level of quality, quality, and I don't mean quality in terms of the, in terms of the the, but the story holds up and, and all of those things. I don't mean, you know, it's it's dragon, so it's rubbish. It, I mean that the, that there is a general, you know, the story arc holds up, the characters are consistent, there is a plot, you know, there is a theme, all of those sorts of things. So that, that and the punctuation is correct in general or, you know, whatever. Um, and the production's good, you know, that the, the book doesn't fall to pieces and it's a, it, it has a cover that's, you know, that's going to attract readers, those sorts of things. So, yeah, so it's a, it's a very it's a very tricky one that whole you know the division between literary fiction and and you know speculative or or um, horror you know the genres and and one of the things I've been saying lately and is that you know literary fiction is what we pretend to read you know so we all pretend we've read you know. We've all read Oh War and Peace. Oh yes, I re read that, but you might not have, right? You just pretend you've read it. And then, you know, the the genre fiction is this, and the humour and romance. It's the stuff you hide under the bed and pretend you don't read, but you actually do, you know. <laughs> so it's a it's a tr it's a tricky one. But I just think, um, yeah, I think the part of, part of the issue is here in New Zealand is that the bulk of our readers or buyers are older women and often white. Um, and so what are they reading? So they want to read literary fiction, they're reading memoir, you know, and so historical fiction, that kind of thing. So that's where the market is. And so that's where New Zealand Festival 
um, organizers in that are, are focusing their, their efforts because they are the people that are buying the books. But it's a little short-sighted because I think the young people are in the gaming field and the lit RPG and the speculative. They want to read fantasy. They want to read AI stuff. And, you know, they want to read, I don't know, new worlds and, and new ways of doing things. They want to read climate fiction. They, they want to know they're much more woke than us. You know, they really are on, on the messaging. And that's what they want to read. So we need to be in that space. And we need to be providing it on a platform that they want to read, just as video gamers have worked that out, right? You know, go to Discord. They're all there. You know, that's where the kids yeah. are. Um, Tumblr and DeviantArt and all of these sorts of places that the young people are. And you need to be writing and you need to be creating in a space that they they can access. So um, for young New Zealand writers, which, as I said, we've been doing for 10 years, we have almost always, once we did hyperfiction, but otherwise we have always worked in the speculative space because that's what the kids are interested in. They love that stuff. And then they can be wildly creative, you know, with their world building and their characters. And they just, they just love that. And that's, so I think it's sort of short-sighted of the New Zealand publishing industry. Really it is, you know, we don't, we don't, Nobody reads that. Actually, they will be because you need to look at yeah. what the cohort will be 10 years from now. You know, I'm going to be that little old lady. You know, what do I read? Well, I read horror, you know, so where is the horror? Um, you know, and I, and I think that that's, that's a little short-sighted um, on the part of the publishing industry. Although I have been part of the Coalition of New Zealand Books and I'm interested in what I'm hearing. You know, a lot of the publishers are saying we need to be in different spaces. So it's not necessarily writing festivals or readers and writers festivals, but we might be going to Armageddon or we might be going to, you know, a gaming convention or we might be turning up to just, a, you know, sell through schools or, sell, you know, other places where people are interested in talking about books and reading and um, and it doesn't matter how the book is, what the form of the book is, audio, ebook, you know, and, um, you know, and I think there's new space, new spaces, you know, they're, they're reading a fan fiction. And so we need to be yes. in those spaces. So um, tie in writing and that kind of thing, you know, and they're, it, it's exciting. It's exciting. I, I, I very much like the things you have to say and the grenades you have to throw, Lee Murray. That was fantastic. <laughs> grenades very, I have very, to throw. Oh, I should be very, very quiet. <laughs> No, 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 no. And that's been the whole, our, our entire conversation is exactly not being quiet about that. Um, one, to me, one, one really interesting um, side example for all of this that we're talking about. So to some extent, New Zealand literature at the high, at, at the high end of town and to some extent, New Zealand film, not the overseas work for hire stuff, but like essentially locally made film. They've both been one way or another government subsidized to a huge extent for a very long time. The really interesting thing about games is that until very recently, you could not get arrested as a game maker in New Zealand in terms of public funding. I, I know most of the people who have started the major New Zealand game studios and they could not get a dime. And what this, what this meant was that a bunch of crazy pioneers who were crossing the lonely plains of New Zealand game development they had to think internationally from almost from day one. They had to reach those audiences. They had to completely leapfrog the idea of, well, first you go local and then you go global. They're all global from day one. And there was this long period where that was very financially difficult for some of them. But over the past few years, 
this has exploded. We have this amazing game industry that takes its products, its experiences to the world. And they did it almost entirely without that thing of you have to appeal to whatever the taste is, as you say, of some um, really sometimes people who are in charge of funding whose tastes do not match the audience. And there's ups and downs of this, but it's a really interesting thing of um, of course we should have local literature, of course we should have local film, of course we should have all these things. But the games industry is a really good example of in the absence of those funding mechanisms, sometimes you just have to find your audience. And I think that's ultimately what all this is about. You have to connect with people, not with tastemakers yeah. to the same extent. Yeah. Well, you know, I had the same experience. You know, I've applied yes. 43 times for funding <laughs> through Creative New Zealand and Creative New Zealand related funds, and I have never received funding from them. Ever. Which is insane to me. I mean, um, absolutely I've just never, insane. You know, and the, the things I've heard are, you know, your your genre isn't very visible in New Zealand. Well, don't thank you for helping me make it visible. Your, I don't like your characters. You know, I mean, it's not really. You know, I don't like your writing. The, some of the stuff is just, you know, oh well, you don't have a real publisher. No, I do, but you just don't know them. You know, because you only you only know New Zealand publishers. So. So, you know, um, and it's it's hard. It's hard and it, it hurts, you know. But having sure. said that, you know, um, and actually just recently I have, I am currently, although I'm not there because we're in lockdown, but um, I'm currently the Grimshaw Sargeson um, resident. Yes. And thank you to that fund, that trust, um, which is private trust, um, for supporting my work and uh, I am so, so grateful. In fact, I burst into tears when they called me to tell me about that. It's the first funding I've ever received. But one of the things that's, that that I think is um, is really sad about, and, and well, okay. So the good thing is, just like the gamers, I've had to say, well, too bad, they don't want to fund me. And I've had to try not to be too depressed about it and say, well, I need to find my own way. And so, yeah. you know, everything I've succeeded, I've done, I've done without them. You know, I haven't, I've done it without them. So, you know, thanks for nothing. I've done it without you, you know. Um, and I just, yeah, but I just, I do think that, um, you know, the, the funding thing is a, is a tricky one because also it means that, you know, these gamers, how do they fund themselves? And I mean, they're eating. How did they eat? The hard way. Yeah. Yeah. You know, yeah. What are the, where were they living? See, for me, you know, I've been so lucky. I started later in my life. My husband said, we're doing okay, we can afford for you not to be working, so we will, you know, um, as it happened, I was at home anyway because my son has Asperger's and so he needs a lot of support. And he said, you know, we don't need you to go back to work, we can cope, so you can do this. And, you know, he sponsored quite a lot of stuff for me because, you know, and then what is the, what is the, um, the cohort or the, the, the demographic of the people, of the creatives that are writing. So for me, I've been very lucky because my dad was European. I went to university. I met a man who, you know, also has a professional career and he can afford, you know, I'm in a cis relationship. I, you know, all of these kinds of things. So I didn't have, I've had all this privilege, even though I'm a person of color, I've had all this privilege all this privilege, and so I have been able to write in spite of the fact that I've had no support yeah. and from outside sources until now, you know, until now. <laughs> and, um, and that, you know, and, and I think that that's, 
we are we are you know we are not we are not advantaging the people the creatives who need to be advantaged so i've been lucky and i've still managed to you know because i've had this privilege but if you if it means that only the people who can afford to write then it means that That'll be mostly retired people writing. Young people, there's no career. They can't feed themselves. They can't get, you know, they can't buy a home. They can't get into an apartment because they don't have, you know, they don't have work, you know, because, you know, when I started, you, oh gosh, when I started, you had to have a job. You couldn't be self-employed to get a mortgage, you know. So so the, the kinds of people that are allowed to be creatives and i think this is a problem with yeah. great gatekeeping is that you are you're saying oh it's inclusive we need to be inclusive etc etc but actually no you are not because this gatekeeping you know they're trying they're doing a lot better i think in trying to open things up for for maori and pacifica writers but there are a huge number of other writers you know or, or creatives that are not able to get access to the support they need. I was talking to a writer recently who is disabled in a certain way and finds it just absolutely impossible to understand, to, to write a funding application. They can write, they can write the way they write, but they cannot write a funding application. And the actual process is so traumatic for them and so difficult to concentrate on. And I, you know, that's just not making it inclusive for them. So, uh, you know, it's just, it's, there are lots of things to, to address. And partly the problem is there's not enough money. There's just not enough money. Just go figure. And yet, you know, I think that creators are essential workers because yes. what has everybody been doing in this pandemic? How have they been coping? Because they've been watching films and they've been reading books and they've been playing games. And they've been doing the things that keep them sane and keep them coping. And, you know, that makes creativity, you know, just – and they've been actually trying things. So, you know, yes. New Zealanders have been painting and, you know, crafting and cooking and doing all those things while they've been stuck at home. And you know, those of, you know, and I mean, well, let's not even go into the hardship of the people who haven't been able to afford to be at home. But, um, but I believe that creativity and creating has been essential to the well-being of New Zealanders during this period. And yet we haven't done enough to support the creatives that, 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 that create those works, you know, that, that, that are that industry. So, but that's, you know, I'm a little biased. <laughs> I'm, I'm a little bit in agreement with you, Lee. That is a that is a, a wonderful and very powerful note, I think, to wrap things up on. That was um, amazing. Thank you so much for your time, Lee Murray. Where can people find you online um, when they want to read more of your things? Yes, you can find me. Um, I'm on Facebook and I'm on Twitter. And you can find me at leemurray.info um, is my website. So hook in there. If you sign in there, you get a free book. So it's always nice. And you, I don't send too many spammy emails. I think you get five a year or I think this year will be six because I've had a lot to say this year because I've had a, a pretty miraculous year. So, um, but yeah. Very few emails from me, but you can sort of get my updates. That is brilliant. I'm going to stop recording there. Lee Murray, thank you so much. Thanks a lot, Colin.
Tempest Bay wouldn't be possible without the amazing support of everyone involved, including you. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe and consider leaving a review. This helps us out a lot. For more, please go to projecttempest.net for access to the videos, art, podcast, award-winning stories, and much more. That's projecttempest.net. See you next time in Tempest Bay. Thank you.